Marketing for Library Marketers podcast, where we will engage in informal conversations with fellow library marketers, industry and social media experts, and other marketing professionals on the topics of marketing, communications, public relations, outreach, and more in libraries of all kinds. Whether you are a librarian, a clerk, assistant, or in some other role, and a team of many or just one, join us as we share tips, inspiration, industry news, success stories, lessons learned, strategies, tools to use, secrets, and more. I'm your host, Katie Rothley, fellow library marketer, librarian, and artist. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Great. Well, thank you for meeting with me. I really appreciate you taking the time to to let me interview you and talk about library marketing and communications. And um, for anyone who's not familiar with you or your work, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Cordelia Anderson. I am a consultant who works primarily with libraries, but also with nonprofits and government agencies, any sort of community serving organizations. Um, But I've worked in and around public libraries for over 20 years. I started with Charlotte Mecklenburg Library in 2020 as a PR specialist and um, left for a while, came back, ended up being director of marketing and communications for the library for 10 years from 2008 to 2018 uh, when I left to start my consulting business. And so I have clients from around the country in Canada, in the library space, including public libraries, academic libraries, library consortia, state libraries, et cetera. And I kind of focus on three main things. One is um, giving talks at libraries or virtually to sort of spur them to think in new and different ways about library marketing and communications. I offer on-demand training through Niche Academy uh, on popular marketing and communication topics. And I also um, do consulting work with libraries if they come to me and they want to create a marketing and communications plan, but they don't necessarily have the time, staff, or resources to do that themselves they'll work with me and I walk them through a process where we identify their audiences, develop key messages, content calendars, strategies and tactics, goals and objectives, KPIs and all that good stuff. Um, Of course, it varies a little bit from client to client because everybody's needs are different. So sometimes I might also help them set up an internal communications plan or I might help them with an advocacy campaign or um, let's see, I have some clients that I sort of help with strategic planning as relates to marketing and communication. So a lot of different things and always different, always fun. Um, And I also did write a book for ALA editions called Library Marketing and Communications, Strategies to Increase Relevance and Results, which is really a sort of a snapshot of my experience and learnings over the years working in libraries and kind of trying to shorten that learning curve for other people so they don't have to learn the hard way like I did. (laughs) Mm, Yes, yes. That's so helpful too, because uh, when you, and when I say you, I mean in general, but I'm also speaking for myself. When you find yourself in a role of marketing your library, you're kind of like, hmm, where do I start? What do I do? (laughs) So it's good to have that. Thanks. Yeah. And I also find like, when it's working at its best, library marketing and communications intersects with every area of library operations. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of libraries make where they see marketing and communications as like its own separate thing. Like, oh, well, we'll we'll bring them in when we want to make a nice brochure or we'll bring them in when we need content for our website or, you know, to manage social media. But they don't think about how communications intersects with your budgeting process, with your facilities projects, with IT projects, you know, all the things um, relate back to communications because without good communications, you can't do the best in those other areas. You know, it could be, you know, you're rolling out RFID, for example. Um, It could be any number of things, but communications is integral to the success of all areas of library operations. So one of the things I made my mission when I was working at my library was to learn all areas of the library operations, not just my own area. Um, So I would go out and work service desk to see what that was like for staff. You know, I would talk to our budget manager. I would talk to our IT folks and just really try to understand how what they were doing might impact, you know, the customer experience and how I could help 
them manage that through good communications. Now, was that something that you just did one time only, or did you check in with everybody on a regular basis, like on a monthly basis, Mm -hmm. a weekly one? Did you make meetings specifically to talk with them to like get updates and get on the same page? It was a little bit of all of the above. And I will say these were not things that came to me on my own. I had wonderful peers and mentors throughout my career. So, you know, for a while I reported to the man who was also over IT. So he really helped me understand how that worked. Um, you know, and then for large portions of my career, I uh, reported directly to the CEO and was part of the executive leadership team. So I'd be in those conversations where we might be talking about issues facing the business office or, you know, issues facing the branches. Um, and so, you know, it was a long um period of learning on my part and also very collaborative colleagues and peers that made it easy for me. Um, But also there was some like me being the convener, certainly like we had a a big um, initiative where we were able to, and a lot of libraries have done this since where student, our local public school students were able Mm -hmm. to access the library through their student ID numbers. I think we were one of the early pioneers of that. We started it in around 2015. Um, And that wasn't my initiative. But what I found over time was, as I was monitoring the usage of these accounts, uh, I wanted to create a better understanding of all the people in the library who touched this process so that we could understand how it worked and how we could make it even better. And so like I remember I convened a meeting that brought in like the people who process the library card applications, the people who handled the data migration, the people who... Um, you know, we're accountable for the partnership with the schools in terms of like the school visits and all the support that we gave. And so that was just to help everybody have a greater understanding of all these different touch points so that we could think of ways to, you know, make the process work even better. Because our concern was not just giving this access to students, but were they using it? And was it actually helping them, you know, make their lives better or helping them academically? Um, And the only way to really know that was to ensure that the whole experience for these, these students was, you know, as easy as possible. And that required a lot of cooperation, you know, throughout our organization. So for somebody who maybe uh, is marketing their library and does all the communications and isn't included in meetings or um, Mm -hmm. maybe is kind of isolated from the other departments in their library. What mm-hmm. would what would your recommendations uh, be for talking to administration about holding uh, these meetings or checking in with other departments? Yeah, so sort of three things pop into my mind, and I apologize for the barking in the background. Um, One is find those collaborators and build relationships, build trust with people within the organization that aren't in your area. And that can be hard um, because there can be some built-in distrust, especially depending on how your organization is structured. Um, but once you can, you know, so there's a great book I read as part of a training I did called the speed of trust. And I always recommend that book because it talks about how to build trust within an organization. As I mentioned, the first thing is, you know, find those collaborators and build trust. And this could be as simple as, you know, inviting a colleague to share a brown bag lunch with you with no agenda whatsoever, other than to just talk. Um, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is to just be curious, like I mentioned before, learn about other areas of the organization. You know, listening builds relationships, too. So just listening to what are the biggest challenges your frontline staff are having, your collection development staff are having, um, you know, all of all of the different areas, again, of your library, whether you're a tiny little, you know, library or a big, complicated library. And obviously you have to pick and choose because you have a, a primary job to do as well. Um, but that would be the second thing. And then the third thing I would really recommend is thinking about when you might need to invite yourself. (laughs) And so I know you've read my book and I talk about this in my book, but at my library, you know, I've been through many evolutions in my career where I, you know, maybe I was younger and my confidence wasn't as strong. Mm -hmm. And I just assumed that they would invite me if I needed to be there. And that was not Mm -hmm. the case. (laughs) I learned 
very, very quickly and very frequently that oftentimes people like marketing and communications weren't necessarily top of mind for them. And what would happen is then I would have to communicate us out of something that we operated ourselves into. And that could be very challenging. And it was so much easier and worked so much better if I could just be in the room when they were making those decisions and having those conversations, because then I could understand what went into it so that when I then needed to help our organization communicate about it, you know, I, I understood the why and the how and all that good stuff. And it wasn't just being there to be a listener. That was another thing I had to learn is I'm not just there to listen or take notes. I'm there to actually weigh in. Um, and so we had a CEO who used to tell me, your job is to let me know how my decisions are going to play on the street. Mm -hmm. um, so he wanted to make sure we had that PR perspective in the room about how the community might respond to decisions that we were going to make. Um, and so a lot of that is on the PR side, but I will say, you know, it also impacts marketing because you can have the best marketing in the world, but let's say your services are difficult to access or, you know, you've blocked a bunch of customers due to, you know, expiring accounts or fines and fees or how your ILS is working. And so again, that's where that curiosity is really important because you may look at the numbers and think, huh, well, I've been doing all this marketing, but programming attendance hasn't gone up. Or I've been doing all this marketing, but our, you know, our average number of cardholders hasn't increased very much. Well, there may be more to that. It may not just be the marketing. It may be, hey, it's really hard to sign up for a library card, you know, or People don't want to have to come to the branch to activate their car. That was a, a big obstacle <laughs> I, I worked on, you know, with my colleagues at my library. Um, or, you know, maybe the program time just isn't convenient. You know, it's not that we haven't thrown enough flyers out there. It's just that <laughs> the the people we want to come to this program are doing something else at that time. So that's, again, where that that curiosity, I think, really helps um, helps you improve your marketing and your communications overall. So then um, how would you how would you go about helping or guiding the organization to become more community focused, especially if you're a department of one person in the marketing mm -hmm. and communications area, and maybe that's not even your full time focus? How how do you go about um influencing or guiding the rest of the library to focus on how customers or patrons are influenced or what outcomes any decision that the library makes has on the community. Yeah, so that's where the curiosity can kind of pay off because if you have access to real life examples, data, um, things like that, you can almost use that information to create a sort of business case for your leadership. Um, and the more you do that, I think, you know, a good leader is going to see value in that and they're going to want to include you in more of these conversations and decisions. And again, if you're a department of one, that's hard because you, you're juggling a lot of responsibilities. That's where maybe finding collaborators could really help. Um, and so I'll give you an example. And this was actually late in my time at the library. So I already had a lot of, you know, um, good relationships and collaborators at that time. But what I was really trying to solve was, again, this issue of why we couldn't grow our number of cardholders, even though we had so many people signing up for cards, like the mm -hmm. overall number of cardholders wasn't growing. Um, where I pulled in like examples from times that I worked out at a branch and data to really help them see like how the customer experience itself still had some holes in it mm. where we were losing customers. And that's where I sort of came up with this concept of the marketing funnel, um, mm -hmm. which I, I mean, I didn't invent the concept of the marketing <laughs> funnel, but the library marketing funnel and how it works in relation to the obstacles that we create for customers along their journey that causes them to leave um, and so, again, I needed in order to make that case, I needed data, I needed examples um, and I needed, you know, the space and time, which is a little hard to find sometimes. Yes. <laughs> um, and access to the data. But again, if you have those collaborators and relationships, you might have a little bit more luck because you can get them to help you, um, especially if you can all start with, you know, grounding yourself in your mission and your purpose, which is really to serve the most people, right? To improve mm -hmm. their lives or to improve your community. 
And, you know, on the surface, everybody is sort of bought into that, but sometimes we have to kind of check in with ourselves and remind ourselves of that. Um, And again, that's where marketing and communications can be really valuable because part of your role in marketing and communications is to communicate your library's mission, vision, and values as well as your brand promise, you know, if you have one, um, and even if you don't have a, a formal one, you know, you can probably all agree what you want people's experience with your brand to be, which is really positive and have that create loyalty and create um, relationships that better, you know, people's lives and better the community. So, you know, all of those things, if we can all kind of get on the same page that we're trying to achieve the same thing, Mm -hmm. um, and that can be hard sometimes because you can have some sort of built-in divisions within your organization or maybe some, you know, preconceived notions about what different departments do. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like an overnight thing, but again, that curiosity, that listening, that building relationships, all of that can help contribute over time to creating an environment where people are on the same page and can, you know, collaborate more effectively to try to solve some of these issues. Um, But it takes time to build that level of, um, you know, influence within your organization. And it can be hard sometimes too, when people see marketing as sort of a support function that's like off Mm. to the side, Um, which is why when I wrote my book, I really originally wrote it for library directors, not for the marketing people. Because mm-hmm. I would, you know, I would go to conferences and things and I'm like, the marketing people know this stuff. Mm-hmm. They they want to do this stuff. You know, I mean, they may not know all the stuff, but they know a lot of the stuff and they understand what needs to be done. But it's often obstacles within their organization, whether, you know, I would talk about email marketing, they'd be like, well, we're not allowed to do that. I'm like, okay, well, but let's dig deeper into that. What do you mean you're not allowed to do that? Did one person tell you no, like five years ago? <laughs> is it worth revisiting? <laughs> um, you know, and that's the other thing is you've got to be persistent, you know? And I think in libraries, like there, there certainly can be a culture in libraries where we're sort of waiting for permission, you know, or this, mm-hmm. this notion that you heard no one time, you know, and that was it. You never asked again. We need to ask again. You know, things are constantly changing. I mean, COVID is such a glaring example of that. You know, the whole idea of virtual, you know, remote working and virtual stuff that we all thought was like impossible. And now it's, you know, what we're doing right now in this conversation. Um, So you got to keep asking, you know, and and making that and building that case, as I mentioned. So it does take time. But um, again, you know, that's why I wrote the book. If you can squeeze it under your director's door one day <laughs> um, or something, get them to read it or even just share excerpts, you know, it's it's really helping them understand how marketing and communications can actually help them make their job easier. Because being a library director or a library CEO is not an easy job. Uh, no, they, it's not. You know, <laughs> They have to know all aspects of library operations. So isn't it helpful for them to have someone who works for them who also is trying to understand that so they can, you know, support them? So, yeah, it's a lot. But again, hopefully it, it's not, uh, doesn't take, a, you know, as long a time as perhaps it took me to learn these lessons if folks can, you know, hear it from me or from other consultants or, you know, other libraries that are having success in, in customer engagement and marketing. Would you say that's the most common uh, obstacle or issue that most libraries that you come into contact with in your consulting business have? Um, I would say the most common issue I see is it's just fundamental to libraries, which is that I won't say we're doing too much, but Mm -hmm. libraries do so much Mm -hmm. and there's no magic way to communicate all of that to a very broad audience all the time. Um, You know, I used to joke that like at my library, I would have to go knock on every door in my county and personally tell them everything about the library (laughs) and then keep going house to house. And then by the time I was done, I would have to start over because everybody would have forgotten, (laughs) you know? But that's what it feels like sometimes because we have the broadest audience possible. We are not a niche institution. We serve everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. from birth to senior citizens and, you know, everybody in between. And we also, you know, um, we offer 
such a wide variety of services. Again, you know, not niche. We have everything, you know, from things for babies to job help to technology assistance and books and streaming content and databases. I mean, databases alone would take, you could spend a year just trying to explain those to people and you would still, you know, have work to do. Um, so that's the biggest challenge is that the the marketing and communications people are drowning trying to communicate all of these different things mm-hmm. to all of these different people. It's like I had a library director years ago say to me, well, we just want to tell our story. And I said, the problem is we're telling a thousand stories mm-hmm. simultaneously and they're all drowning each other out. You know, and so figuring out what is that one story that's going to resonate people with people, hook them in, get them engaged, and then you can slowly then tell them all the other things. I think that's another challenge we have is we're just trying this sort of very broad approach, like dropping leaflets out of a plane, you know, um, but it's that's not going to be really effective. So what what I try to focus clients and people who participate in my training in on is like growing that engagement, getting that customer connected, and then building that relationship over time. And then there are a lot of strategies you can use to then communicate all the many, 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 many different resources from like email drip campaigns, you know, to social media posts and all that good stuff. But the first thing you have to do is get that relationship with the customer um, going, because if you don't have them if you don't have them connected, then you can't tell them all the other stuff. So that's the biggest challenge. The other thing that is a common refrain that I've been hearing for at least 15 years from uh, library marketing and communications people is programming. Programming is the heavy lift in marketing. It is very time consuming. It is very labor intensive on the marketing side of things. And so our um, marketing staff, you know, proportionately are spending, you know, 75% of their time marketing programs. And one of the things I um, will show in one of my trainings, and I have this on demand, but I also will do it in live talks, is if you look at your budget and what your library spends its money on, it's people, buildings, and books. Those are the top three. That's probably 75 to 80% of your budget. Programming is usually less than 5%, okay? So if you look at your budget as an indicator of what what your library's priorities are, those are your priorities, your staff, your your buildings, and your books. But when we do our marketing, it is the reverse. (laughs) We (laughs) spend 75 to 80% of our marketing on programs, and we give short shrift to our spaces, our staff, and our collections. And so I really encourage libraries to try to flip that and balance out their marketing so that they're also communicating all the, you know, like one thing that libraries often leave on the table is meeting room space. Like Mm -hmm. that is a huge Mm -hmm. community service, meeting room space, study rooms, collaboration space, all of that stuff. We should be marketing that more. We should be marketing collections more, you know? Um, And so when you look at most library newsletters, it's all programs. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think that is just due to like how libraries are set up and that staff themselves get really excited about their programs because to them, like circulation stuff is just like the boring stuff. And then they, and then they're like, oh, but I have this program I'm really excited about. So I'm going to go to marketing and be the squeaky wheel and ask them to market my program. And I totally get that. And I don't, I'm not like saying it in a negative way, but I'm saying we have to balance that, you know, with Mm -hmm. where, uh, where the great value that libraries provide, we want to convey all of the, all of the great things that we offer, not just our programs and programs are a more labor intensive thing to market because it's all about the when, the where, the why, the how, all that good stuff. Um, And we still want to do that, but there are more efficient ways to do that so that we can focus on other things. (laughs) So uh, we just recently completed a strategic plan, uh, the whole planning process and researching and everything. And shocker, the number one reason why people come to our library is for books to read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just think that after having gone through that process to, to look at the data and the responses and analyze it and everything that... Libraries are still a a specific place people go to to 
get books to read. And I think we forget about that sometimes, like, Mm -hmm. just like what you said about programming. I think staff Mm -hmm. get so invested in the programs that they're hosting and running or inviting another professional into that we forget that readers advisory and reference interactions are a big part of the library story too. Absolutely. I love readers advisory. I love marketing it. And during the pandemic, that was something I was really trying to. uh, So I knew a lot of libraries struggled during the pandemic with virtual programming. Suddenly Mm -hmm. they were trying to take in-person programs and stick them online. And they didn't understand like, gosh, we're spending all this time on these programs and nobody's, you know, streaming them or whatever. And what I, one of the things I was strongly advocated during that time was don't try to take a physical program and stick it online. That's not necessarily going to work. It's a different platform. You you can't rely on foot traffic and things like that. But w- some of the great examples I saw libraries doing were just live readers advisory online. And I also strongly advocated like pick a platform that people are already on. Don't try mm-hmm. to force them to come to your you know, place, your virtual streaming platform. So I saw libraries doing readers advisory drop-ins on Instagram where they would just be on Instagram live for an hour and anybody who wanted to could pop in and ask for a book recommendation. And especially during the pandemic, people needed that face-to-face interaction. They needed uh, book recommendations. And so those libraries were doing a great service. And I, the one thing I had to kind of, you have to sometimes get past this mental block of this, um, counts. This counts as a program just because you didn't schedule it and make a flyer and book a room and, you know, make tick marks on a sheet. It's still a program because you engaged people, you helped people, you um, taught them about the library and you met their needs. It's still a program and it still counts, you know? And so that's another kind of mental block we get into of like the old school way of planning programs is like, what I said, you have to kind of plan it and then market it and sit there and wait for people to show up. If people are already in a space and you impromptu give them something, that can be a program, you know? And I've seen that done really well in some libraries where they literally do pop-up programs or spontaneous programs, or they actually go to spaces where people are already gathered and offer programming, you know, so it doesn't always have to be the sort of rigid, you know, one, two, three, four process. And, you know, again, COVID, I saw some really great examples of libraries thinking outside the box and doing cool stuff. And then I also saw examples of libraries really struggling because they were just trying to like record a program and stick it on YouTube and, and, you know, didn't understand why they weren't getting the return on their investment. Um, but it just wasn't the right fit. And again, I don't want to pile on those libraries because they were trying to figure out same as the rest of us. And a lot of a lot of it was just trial and error. So I just tried to lift up those examples that I thought were really good, you know, during that time. So so then it becomes a question of how what is the best way to get the customer, the patron connected with the library to find out about these things or to communicate your the library's value, the library story. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are many ways to approach this and that's why I really always start with audiences with my consulting and marketing and communications planning and even strategic planning. You've got to start with your audiences, who you're trying to serve, because ultimately it's about meeting their wants and needs. That's literally what marketing is, is the science of understanding wants and needs of your target customers, and then offering the programs and services that will meet those wants and needs. And so um, that's really why you have to start with who you're trying to serve and figuring out kind of what their needs are. Um, And then targeting your messaging to answer the question, what's in it for me, for them, and targeting your strategies to reach them where they are. And again, it's not about making them come to you or forcing them to read the thing that you want them to read. Um, It's about being where they are uh, when they get their information. And, And ultimately, the other thing I like to talk about is just creating that initial um connection, which is where the marketing funnel comes in of just getting them signed up for a library account. Uh, It's not even always a card. Sometimes it may just be a virtual account, but creating that first relationship and connection then allows you to build, 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 build. And so 
how can we reduce the barrier to entry for that first connection, you know? Um, And then even if it's possible, if that first connection is a program, um, there still are ways that you can create that relationship there. So if you're taking email addresses when people register for a program, can you, you know, just build in um, a consent that they they allow you to then send them other library messages? And most people will consent. And when I say build in the consent, I mean, make the checkbox there and make it easy for them. So all they have to do is check it if they don't want it, you know, not making them check a box if they do want it, but having them have the option of checking a box that they don't want it. Because a lot of times when you force people to opt in, it's not that they don't want to opt in. They just are busy and their attention is fragmented and they just don't remember to opt in. And so I really encourage libraries to switch from this sort of passive opt-in model to more of an opt-out model where the default is opting people in and they have that clear and transparent option to, you know, unsubscribe if they want to. But most people won't. Um, you know, every library I've ever worked with, including the one where I worked, when we switched to this sort of default of opting everyone into marketing messages, the unsubscribe rates are less than 1%. Mm. So they're virtually zero. <laughs> um, so if you think of it that way, as long as you're very transparent and responsible um, about how you're using email, email is a great way to start that relationship. And if you think about it, every other company and organization in the world does this. The first way you create an account with almost every company that you buy things from is to give them your email address, right? We're mm-hmm. so used to that. And we're all you and we all pretty much understand how to unsubscribe. You know, like our email box gets too full. We go through and we're like, eh, I'm gonna unsubscribe to these things. Um, so you know, that is the thing is like we've got to reduce that barrier to entry to create that first connection where we get that email address or that contact information. And then we can, again, continue to engage with them. So if their first contact is a program, the next engagement could be to invite them to sign up for a library card, right? If their first contact is signing up for a library card, that next engagement could be to tell them about, did you know we had streaming content? Um, And then the next engagement after that could be, did you know we have these convenient ways you can place books on hold and renew them, you know? And so that's what they call drip campaigns in the industry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where you can then begin to build that relationship and keep them engaged um, versus having that first contact and then they never hear from you again. So then that makes me think Mm -hmm. about uh, some of the libraries that I've had experience working at where the emails include everything. You know, it, it's not necessarily a, an email drip campaign. It's more of, you know, here's everything that's going on this month and then some online resources and maybe a little bit about the collection in general. Mm-hmm. Then the emails become very long. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I totally went through this in my career as well. It's basically what we did was we all took our print newsletters and we turned them into email newsletters and we put all the same amount of content. You know, we might've cut things down a little bit. I mean, we were, Mm -hmm. we were, we were smart about it, but yes, it became very broad. But what I want to say is if you're doing that, but you're sending it to all your customers, that's a good start. Like, don't stop. You know what I mean? Keep that going but monitor it. See how many people are actually clicking through on the links. How many people are actually opening and reading that email newsletter? Um, Because an email newsletter isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially if it's the only thing you're doing. Don't stop Mm -hmm. that (laughs) because at least it's some form of engagement, right? Mm -hmm. And even if they aren't seeing the content at the bottom of the email, which they probably aren't, at least they're seeing an email from the library. And so it's like a little ping in their brain, like, oh yeah, the library exists. I like the library. Maybe I should go there, you know? So at least it's a touch point, but what you can definitely do is do more targeted e-blasts. So what we were able to do at my library was look at um, people's interests in a variety of different ways. And there are a lot of tools that will let you do this, but even if you're just using a constant contact type of, um, or MailChimp type of service, there are ways you can do this through, you know, people subscribing to different affinity lists or whatever. But the really uh, low hanging fruit is where people live and what Mm. branch they use. So we would do targeted branch e-blasts. And these were very popular also with our branch staff. So it helped us build stronger relationships 
between the branch staff and the marketing staff, but they were popular with the patrons where we would target people who either lived in the zip code of a certain branch and zip codes aren't a perfect way, but again, we're not trying to be perfect. We're just trying to engage with people, right? Uh, so we'd pick a zip code that was you know, pretty geographically aligned or a couple of zip codes that were geographically aligned with a branch. And we had about 20 branches. So we literally just had a list and we would just kind of go through and then start mm-hmm. over. Um, so we'd, we'd pick people who were near that branch and then we would pick people who had used that branch. And that was really just data from the ILS. Like had they used that branch in the last year or, or I forget exactly what our criteria were. So that created a population of people who either were near a location or had used a location. And we would send a targeted e-blast just to those folks. And I think the subject line was like, here's what's happening at your Mint Hill branch library or, you know, something very simple. And so it would have a few programs and that were highlighted. And then it would also, again, have resources, meeting room space, all that good stuff, because we don't want to forget that. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we found is when we sent those e-blasts, people would actually come into the branch and be like, oh, I got your email, you know, and the branch staff would be like, I emailed you. (laughs) And so, you know, we would work with them. We would tell the branch staff in advance. That was one quick thing we learned early on. It's like, oh, tell the branch staff in advance. I mean, they knew that we were doing it because we would get the content from them, but then Mm -hmm. they would sort of forget. And so we'd remind them like, we're sending this out tomorrow. And so the patrons would come in and be like, oh, I got your email. I want to try this new, you know, makerspace you have, or I want to go to this program. And so it really just, again, it got people engaged. But the other thing about customization like that, even at a very simple level, is that people are like, oh, you know me, you care about my needs, you know, that I happen to live near this branch, you know, it's not like you're trying to market this branch that's 20 miles away to me, you're marketing the thing that's close to me and convenient. Mm. So um, again, it's just about showing the customers that you're listening to their needs or that you're paying attention. Um, so the the geography piece is kind of the low hanging fruit, but there are other things you can do like, you know, segment people based on whether they have young children and just market those things to them or, you know, stu- students and market, you know, study rooms and tutoring to them. So there are other ways that you can certainly segment, um, but it, it just depends on the tools you have and how sophisticated they are if you're able to do that. Now, I have seen even a one-branch library system that subscribed to a pretty robust email marketing tool um, that is specifically targeted to libraries, and they are doing great stuff. And that's just a one-marketing person, one-branch library system. So it is possible to do even if you're a small library. Yeah, we're we're using Orange Boy at my library and mm-hmm. it has a built-in system for segmenting users of the library based on how they use it. So it's really nice. Yeah, yeah, that's who I worked with at Charlotte Mecklenburg uh, Library as well. And yeah, we were able to target people based on their usage. We even uh, ran a campaign for people who were over the fine limit because it really bothered me that we were blocking people um, who were because our fine limit was very low. I think it was like five dollars or something mm-hmm. ridiculous like that, maybe ten. Um, and so we would even email them to say like, "Hey, we don't, you know, we miss you, and we don't want fines to keep you away. Here are all the great things you can still do at the library, even if you're over the fine limit. And oh, by the way, if you want to pay off your fines, you know, here's some options for you. Um, so that's a you know, good thing to think about. Um, it, mm-hmm. Like you said before, removing a barrier to access. Yeah. One of the things we decided to do late in my time there was to stop blocking patrons from using computers um, if they were over the fine limit. And that kind of came out of a conversation that started that I started. But again, like collaborators came in and helped where I was like, hey, I was working at this branch and I noticed like every person who came to the desk to get on a computer was almost always over the fine limit. And the staff had developed this ingenious workaround to help get people on the computers, even if their primary account was blocked. And I was like, it's great that staff are doing that, but like, wouldn't it be more efficient if they didn't have to do that? And the other thing was we were, you know, reporting out statistics to our primary funder and we were always looking and I was like, you know, our computer statistics aren't going up. And I think that's because we aren't counting all these people 
who are getting on computers due to this workaround. So why don't we just, you know, how can we solve this? And my collaborators came in and said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to lift this restriction entirely. It's not like because someone had an overdue book, they're suddenly going to steal a computer. Why are we punishing these people? You know, and it just took Mm -hmm. a minute. Like I always encourage libraries, like revisit your policies because it becomes business as usual and you don't think about it anymore, but you need to always be thinking about it. And so that was an example where, the collaborators swooped in and were like, hey, let's lift this restriction. And then we were able to market that to all the people and say, you can now use a computer. And it improved our statistics too, like because we now had an accurate representation of how much our computers were used, which was important because that's how our funders decided how frequently to replace our computers. So mm-hmm. it's not even just a selfish thing, like we want to bragging rights. It, le- it legitimately tied back to supporting the customer you know, if we can't accurately say how many people are using our computers, we can't ensure that our computers are being updated with the right software and hardware and all that stuff. So yeah, remove barriers as much as you can. Um, It's crazy to think that we are out there marketing to people. We're spending money on flyers and advertising and stuff saying, come use the library. And then we're scratching our heads like, well, why aren't they why aren't they using us? And it's like, (laughs) maybe we, maybe we shoved them out the door, you know, maybe we aren't letting them use us. And maybe we need to think about that. Not to mention, you know, the economical impacts of um, blocking people who often are the very people who need the library the most. Oh, Um, yes. So, yeah. yeah. And then the other uh, considerations are time and convenience. I know that was something that Mm -hmm. we received a lot of feedback from our strategic planning and convenience was a huge factor because the service area that we uh, provide library services to, we're located in the northern part of it. And there's this whole area in the south that we just don't tend to reach very well. And we're trying Mm -hmm. to improve that. Yeah, absolutely. Convenience is huge. And again, especially post COVID as people's behaviors have changed, you know, even though um, at least in the part of the country where I live, you know, everybody's pretty much walking around without masks and, um, you know, most services have gone back to you know, normal people's behavior has not, or I don't even want to say normal, but pre pandemic levels of service. Mm. Right. So I, you know, I walked into my little local library branch last night to pick up a hold. And when I used to go there, uh, pre pandemic, it would be full of people tutoring people on computers, people reading books. And it was so fun and bustling. Um, and now I go in there to pick up my hold and I'm literally the only person in there. So, Mm That ha- that is, you know, just one branch. But I, you know, I think that that is what I'm hearing a lot throughout the country is like some patrons have come back <clears throat> for sure. And things like story times and stuff are always going to be popular, um, but not all. And some have become digital only. And that's OK, too. I mean, as long as they're using the library and they're benefiting, then great. But we also have lost, you know, some people who maybe went to other things because the library was closed. And so that convenience piece or even just, you know, now they've integrated that new service into their lives and maybe they're paying for it and they're like, well, it's 20 bucks a month, but it's so convenient. I'm already subscribed, you know, like Audible would be an example. You know, I used to get my well, Audible is not a good example because you could still get audiobooks during the pandemic. Um, but let's <laughs> say they're, you know, going to a bookstore to buy their books now instead of going to the library or, you know, or going elsewhere for computer access or they go to, you know, a coffee shop for Wi-Fi because they couldn't get into the library, whatever it might be. They sort of adjusted to that because it was over a year. And so getting people to come back is hard. And I think library staff are still a little scared too, you know, like, um, their behavior, their lives were impacted too. And I don't want to downplay like the trauma of the pandemic on library Mm-mm. staff as well, you know, cause we're human beings as well. Um, so yeah, so that's a real challenge. And, and I don't think we can go back to pre pandemic, um, everything being the same. I think we're just going to have to keep evolving and changing. So then how are, what would you recommend for the best way to invite those people back that aren't coming into the library? Is it email? Is it communication in person? Do we need to go out into the community and have flags or signs or post flyers at 
local businesses? What do you recommend? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of a combination of push and pull, you know? So like, yes, email is a huge tool that a lot of libraries are not using. And it is my personal, you know, passion project to get all libraries to use email as a fully opted in, you know, way to communicate with their customers. So that is a huge one. Um, the three main ways that people look for information nowadays from your organization are website, social media, and email. So I've seen some libraries do really great integrated marketing campaigns that were a combination of email and social and web and maybe some paid advertising or print collateral um, to literally welcome people back to the library, you know, like actual campaigns just focused on bringing people back. Um, there was a library system in Florida, and I'm sorry, I can't think of the name, but I think I wrote about them on my blog, maybe. Mm, so okay. uh, anyway, I do try to highlight great library work on my blog. So if people want to go there, it's CordeliaAndersonAPR.com, and then just click on my blog um, and look for examples because I try to highlight those. But um, so that, but also going back to the thing I said before of going to where people are, um, like literally that could mean if you have a company in your community with a large number of employees, what if you uh, offered to send a library staff member to their monthly employee meeting to talk about the great things the library has to offer? You know, uh, we had at my library a makerspace and we were always trying to get people to come to the makerspace. And I was like, always thinking, couldn't we bring the makerspace to them? I mean, not like all the equipment, but yeah. <laughs> like a little a little roadshow kind of demonstrating it by going, because ours was in this downtown location and it was kind of hard for people to park to get there. So I was like, can we find people who are already downtown, like these headquarters companies and go to them and be like, hey, look at these examples of things you can make in the makerspace. You can make stuff for your wedding. You can make stuff for your Christmas gifts. You can make stuff, you know, a prototype for a cool idea you have, whatever it might be. But like waiting for people to come to us is just not gonna work. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's never really been the best approach, but I think libraries were able to rely on what I call like the serendipity Mm -hmm. uh, phenomenon or foot traffic where people are just already in the library or they drove by the library and they saw it and they're like, oh, I should go in there. And, you know, and then they stumble upon the makerspace or whatever it might be. Um, we just can't rely on that anymore. The serendipity, mm -hmm. the foot traffic is just not there. And so how can we get to where other people are? And I know we call that outreach and we sort of put it in its own little department, but it's, it's really all of us like in the library doing that. It's the programmers, it's the marketing people, maybe building those relationships with those companies or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I actually have a client that's not a library. It's a, it's a publicly funded pre-K program. Mm. I love them. And, um, <laughs> you know, we piloted a, a strategy last year to target a local organization and do a campaign, just reaching their employees again. And so this year we're going to replicate it with two to three more companies, you know, using the strategies that we piloted. So that's another example of just like partnerships, you know, partnerships are another low hanging fruit if you do it right. Um, so, you know, you can't just have the partnership. You have to talk about the partnership and your partner needs to talk about the partnership as well. So, yeah, it's almost like sales and we don't really get that training in library school. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I was an English major and that's what my master's degree is in. So I didn't know any of this stuff either. You know, I had to learn um, when I got my accreditation in public relations, I learned a lot about public relations and marketing that I didn't learn in college. Um, and that was really, really helpful. But then also just like reading and, you know, paying attention to all of these different um people who are doing a good job out in the world. And it's not always just libraries, you know, we can look to other organizations, other industries for inspiration as well. Uh, that leads me to one of my questions is, um, what is your favorite, it doesn't have to be a library marketing book, but what is your favorite marketing book other than your own, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I really like there's this marketing guy and I'm sure like some people are, uh, you know, like just with everything, he was very popular. Maybe some people are sick of him now, but I really like his way of thinking. And his name is Seth Godin. 
Um, he's sort of a marketing guru, I guess. And he's written a lot of books. He also has a blog. And and I heard an interview with him once. He tries to like write something for his blog every day. And it's sort of that wonderful idea that I mentioned earlier of like, sometimes perfect is the enemy of very good. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes libraries, like we're so hesitant to do anything if it's not going to be perfect. It's like, it's fine. It's okay. We can be very good sometimes. It's all right. Um, And so he, you know, I saw him speak in 2008 at a conference and it happened to be right before I went back to work at my library as director of marketing communications. I'd been away at a different organization that sent me to this conference but from HubSpot back when HubSpot was still a little baby company. Um, mm. They're they're a big uh, company in marketing now. Mm. And so he was the key, one of the keynotes and he had this great um, book. I think it was called Meatball Sunday. And it was sort of this idea of like, just because meatballs are good and Sundays are good doesn't mean you should put them together or something <laughs> like that. But he basically was like, you know, again, you have to start with the need of the customer, not what you think your product should be. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to be successful, you know? And that was like the first principle. And that just really stuck with me because it made so much sense, especially in the context of libraries where we tend to go about it of like, well, these are the services we offer because these are the services we've always offered. And Mm -hmm. our job is to make everybody use these services, right? But it's (laughs) actually not true. You know, we can actually think about it from okay, this is the community we serve. These are the needs in the community that we serve. Our job is to meet those needs, right? It's just a different inverse way of thinking about it. And so I really like Seth Godin and I can't name one book. He's got quite a few good ones. So I just recommend checking him out. And even if you don't want to have to buy a book, again, his blog is really interesting as well. Um, So that's one there. Gosh, I'm trying to think other marketing books. Well, I would say just start start there. Um, I got my accreditation in public relations. And so um, I did also learn a lot of good stuff about marketing in that. And so there's just like a, a textbook that we all use called Public Relations Strategies and Tactics, which uh, is commonly used in colleges for communications programs. And that just has a lot of good like fundamentals in it that I that I refer to all the time. Um, you know, for, for various things, including like how to measure campaigns effectively, how to engage, you know, how to do media relations, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cordelia. I wish we could just keep talking the whole day, but (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you taking the, the time to meet with me and talking about library marketing. It's been awesome. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And I look forward to hearing it on your podcast. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. I hope it was as helpful for you as it was for me. You can follow this podcast, keep track of new episodes and find me primarily on RSS and Spotify. Follow me on my website, thelibrarianmarketer.org through WordPress. Take my survey there for planning future episode topics and guests. Or send me questions, constructive feedback, ideas, and anything else at info at It's also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. Until next time. <laughs>